Hey, it's Jeff here. After working as an automotive tech for almost 25 years, I can honestly say that finding employment with the right shop has been the difference maker between loving what I do every day or hating my career choice. Let me tell you, I've been there, but I've also had jobs where work didn't really feel like work. I love the challenge of fixing cars. So loving what I do, that's the easy part. Finding a good place to do it in, now that's been the struggle. And that's where my friends at ProMotive knock it out of the park. They're a recruitment company specializing in jobs for our automotive industry. A-techs, B-techs, master techs, service advisors, managers, you name it. They are constantly looking for applicants in automotive to link them with available job postings at only the best vested shops around the country. ProMotive has a team of professional recruiters that can help you with your resume, prep you for the interview process, and negotiate the best pay and benefits package for you. And best of all, it's free to anyone looking to gain employment. Check them out at gopromotive.com slash Jeff. gopromotive.com slash Jeff. Just think, you could be just five minutes away from finding your dream job. I deserve more pay. I deserve more pay. And I'm like, if you're good, then you probably do. Most of you aren't, unfortunately. Everybody thinks they're fantastic. I learned quickly that I wasn't that great. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another exciting, thought-provoking episode of the Jaded Mechanic Podcast. My name's Jeff, and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this journey of reflection and insight into the toils and triumphs of a career in automotive repair. After more than 20 years of skin knuckles and tool debt, I want to share my perspectives and hear other people's thoughts about our industry. So pour yourself a strong coffee or grab a cold Canadian beer and get ready for some great conversation. Welcome back to, ladies and gentlemen, to another exciting episode of the Jaded Mechanic Podcast. With me again, I say again because we had some technical difficulties last week, is um, social media technician superstar, Chris Enright of Enright Auto. Chris, how are you tonight, man? I'm good, man. I'm glad to be back after the chaos and lightning storm and lightning strike. Yeah, we're happy to have you back. So it, it... it caused you some. It cost you some money that that storm that went through. It did, yeah. We, it, funnily enough, after I lost power and, and got off the podcast, I went in, in the house and we were uh, actually the kids had woken up because it scared them, mm-hmm. and so we were standing in the bedroom, and then all of a sudden the lightning struck and we saw sparks coming from our outlets, and so I was like, "Oh shoot!" So I just started unplugging stuff, and then the next day I found out that it had hit. I don't know what exactly it hit, but it arced through the internet and then the back of the one of the outlets actually for the internet was like all black and charred the uh the cable guy that he when he came to fix it because i went and bought a new modem and then that's when they told me oh we're not receiving a signal to the modem so yeah it was a mess so i had to go buy some surge protectors you know what better way to protect yourself than after the the problem so pound a cure that's good i mean i mean it's not good that that uh that happened but it's good that you're able to make it back so yeah you're pretty big on on social media you're very well known how what's your total count last on your different platforms because you're on youtube you're on facebook 
you're on Instagram, you're on TikTok. Yeah, you're up. I'm pretty much on all of them. You're up to except over, for like Twitter and stuff. Right, you're over forty thousand, aren't you on TikTok? No, TikTok's actually just over 30. So I actually started my TikTok about six months later than all the other platforms. And then I actually didn't, like, I wasn't actually active on it. I was just reposting everything, never really doing much of, as far as like trying to build a community, because I just wasn't familiar with it, didn't care to build it, which was a mistake. But that one's lagged behind. And I didn't start actually working on that until about probably four to six months ago. So it's been... Not too much, but Instagrams, I think at like 45,000, YouTubes at like 50 something thousand and Facebooks, depending on which page, my personal or my business, I think between the two of them were over a 5,000 on, on Facebook. It's, it's pretty good. It's big. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah I it's, it's been you. a fun journey. Yeah. I first started following you on Instagram. That's where I saw you first. And then of course yeah. we met last year at AST, right? And then uh, yeah. really have connected with everything that's going on. So that was that was a highlight was to i never had chick-fil-a before and to have like you know be with you and marissa your lovely wife at chick-fil-a and and experience chick-fil-a and all the uh the american glory that goes along with it was was a lot of fun that's right jesus is chicken man (laughs) i mean i was like what's all this hoopla about this chicken that everybody's going on about right and after when i was in um when i was at our friend lucas's for the fourth everybody around there is all about the bojangles which is oh yeah yep which is you know you can get chicken, you can get a chicken sandwich and biscuits at like 5 30 in the morning with white sweet tea and the whole thing i'm just like who eats a chicken sandwich at 5 30 in the morning but oh everybody in the lineup for <laughs> you know it was that's crazy. crazy yeah that ain't me for sure no no, it was, uh, uh-uh. it, it's good. ASTE was, was a big deal for me because not just to get to meet you guys, but was the, the first destination event that I've ever been to. And for you, that was your second time in AST? Last year? Sec, I believe that was my second time. Yes. Yeah. Second time. So this year will be my third time. Yeah. So second time there I had, been to, I went to AST first, then I went to Vision because I won the scholarship through ASOG, which was amazing. And I encourage everybody who goes to any of the training events, if there's an ASOG dinner, sign up. It's worth it. It's a great time, great people. And then I went to AST, and which is when I got to meet you the second time because the first time I had ever heard of your name was on the podcast. Yeah, and yeah, then name- I responded to the post when they said it. And I said, you can tell Jeff that I love my tools and I like to fish from the dock because <laughs> yeah, you were talking about bass boats, that famous podcast. Cause yeah, that was the thing. It's like, everybody's like, you know, we're discussing how did that go? Or it's like, Oh, I'm, I said, I'm done buying. I don't want to buy expensive tools. Now I want to buy a bigger mm-hmm. one. Right. And it's like, and I kind of made the comment about like, well, yeah, you can buy a lot of nice tools and still go fishing, but you'll be on the dock. And, uh, yeah, you know, people got what I was trying to say, but they were also like, what's wrong with fishing from the dock? Nothing. (laughs) Well, and I mean, I, what you're saying is true. And I see, I have a more of a perspective now of that as like, cause I preach all the time, like, especially like when I'm doing my conversations on TikTok and stuff, because people will say, oh yeah, you know, 
there's always the back and forth between techs and owners and owners and techs, this, that, and the other. And I encourage people as techs, I'm like, owners should be paying for more tools. They should be paying for more of your tools, whether that's actually buying them themselves and giving them to you or giving you a tool allowance or some sort of money towards tools. I absolutely believe that there's not enough owners that do it, unfortunately. And it doesn't have to be like, I was thinking about that today. It doesn't always sometimes have to be, a really expensive, you know, item, right? Like it doesn't have yeah, no. necessarily a piece of diagnostic equipment, but I mean, I'm pretty lucky. We have a, so up here in Canada, there's something called princess auto, which is similar to Harbor freight and similar in quality and similar in convenience. And, you know, they're one block away. So sometimes if you need like a, a special socket, you know, some metric 12 point for a Volkswagen axle bolt or something like that, you don't have to wait for the tool truck. You might not have it. You can yeah. run up the round of block. You can get it. You're back in 20 minutes. You're done, right? If you need a cheap wrench that you want to heat up and cut to make to get the thing done, that's great. You know, I don't have a problem. The boss doesn't mind us running up there and getting it. But I mean, there's just some things that are like, it seems to be some of the shops is like, well, if it's over 2000 bucks, I buy it for them. But if it's a hundred dollars, like they should be buying that for themselves. And I've got a box full of hundred dollar tools that I've only used once or twice. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, I don't know that what's the solution there. And a hundred dollars here is not the same as a hundred dollars that you can buy on Amazon. I'm talking like a hundred dollars that you might spend on a tool truck versus what you can spend when you don't need the immediate convenience of a tool truck you know, you're getting a different, different value there, but it, it, yeah. it it's up, man. I'm, I'm to the point with my career where I don't want to buy anymore. You know, like I want to buy, I want to buy a better cart so I can be more efficient moving around the vehicle, bring more stuff with me, cut down on trips back and forth, but I don't want to buy any more expensive stuff, you know? Like, I've always found, like, especially with a lot of the social media that I, stuff that I do and a lot of it being around tools, I don't do as much tool stuff now as I did in the beginning. It's I've, I've kind of pushed towards, like, the industry stuff. And – but what I found is, is it's usually a pretty – big split like there's a divide and you either really like tools and you like spending money on them or you absolutely hate spending money on tools and you only buy them because you have to at the end of the day i always tell people like it doesn't really matter like we all still need the tools no matter what and everybody's so i don't know gung-ho about what other people spend their money on and what tools they're buying and like oh you know it's every time i post my power tool drawer it's yeah, half it's- Milwaukee, half Snap-on, and the comments are always like, "Oh, it's fine," except for all the Snap-on, and then the other comments like, "Well, you almost had it good until you put the Milwaukee in there." I'm like, "Y'all are the same. You're literally the same. Just they they only see one or the other. It, it's it's crazy." I'm like, "Who cares? Just let me yeah. spend my money." And half that stuff I didn't pay for anyways. So like, it's, it, it's I don't know. People are just hilarious. But I agree like about the smaller stuff, you know, think about how many tools that you buy that you don't use that sit in there very often. But when you do need it, it's worth its weight in gold. That's the kind of stuff that I hate buying, but yeah, I love it when I have it, but you buy it and it's like six months. You're like, Oh, six months later, I'm finally using this tool again. Absolutely. I would, I would love to buy that for my tech and say, okay, here you go. You don't have to worry about this. It's in your toolbox now. It, that kind of stuff matters too. It does make a difference. Mm-hmm. Now your background, you, you're a UTI graduate, right? Yeah. Yep. You to UTI and- yeah. What did you ever think when you were way, way back then that you would ever see, was anybody talking back then 
about buying tools for techs? No. Not that I know, not that I can remember. It's been a long time ago now. But not that I can remember. I mean, the the school was loaded with mm-hmm. good tools. I mean, they had pretty much Snap-on everything. Snap-on scan tools, Snap-on hand tools, everything. Like, it was all pretty much Snap-on. That the, thi- the thing I didn't really like about it was the way they taught Diag and stuff with the half cutaway cars and yeah penned out problems that I didn't, I didn't feel like I learned very much from there, unfortunately. So give us kind of your background because you it's, it's varied for you, right? You did some, you did some independent work. You did, you're mostly known. I want to say is probably a dealer guy though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mostly uh, that's what most people know me. Cause I was, worked at the dealership, but uh, yeah. So I went to UTI, I graduated from UTI and I was working at a hotel actually making pretty good money in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Um, Then I actually went from there, come back home and worked for a company where I was on the road for three months or three weeks out of the month. I'm sorry. And I was making really good money there. Like as soon as I got out of there, I think I was making like, it was close to a hundred grand and nobody would even come close to that work like me starting at a shop because I didn't have the experience and rightfully so like I didn't deserve a hundred grand at that time, but it was really hard for me to want to do anything else. Uh, but anyways, long story short, I hated that job. So I quit and then I went to try to find an automotive job. Cause obviously that's what I went to school for. That's what my passion was. Uh, and I couldn't find a job. Everybody wanted to start me off as a loop tech. And when I was, went from the hotel to there, I was making way more money than what they were trying to pay me as a loop tech. And I'm like, there's no way I like, I just paid 30 grand for school. I should hopefully have a leg up on these guys who have no experience and I can't afford to get paid $8 an hour. Actually at that time, I think it was seven something dollars an hour. And so I got a job at Napa. I was like, if I'm going to get paid, you know, whatever I can go deliver parts and deliver parts to shops. That was my goal. And in my mind, I'm like, I'll deliver parts to these shops and it will get me a job. (laughs) I'll just let them know like, yeah, I went to school for automotive. And that's exactly what happened. I would deliver into this shop. He had fired his main guy that had been there for like 18 years. He was his main Diag guy, um, did all of their Diag. He had a heavy line guy that did all out of the alignments and suspension. And then this other guy, we had fired him. They didn't get along. So I took his spot brand new in the industry mm-hmm. to fill his shoes. And that was an interesting ride. They actually, it was a, it was a great experience. I worked there for two and a half years. The owner was just very hard to work for, very angry, yelling a lot. And they had taken bets at Napa on how long that I was going to last there and how long I would take me to quit and leave. And uh, none of them thought I'd make it longer than six months. And I did like two and a half years. So, and that's the thing I, you know, we, we sometimes forget about it, but right. When you have that, that fire, that resolve that you want to have this, you know, they hear me say it, right. You embrace the grind, you embrace the suck. If you really want to do it, it's, some bosses that seem, you know, that have a reputation or some coworkers that have a reputation, you can make it, you know, you can make it work. Like it, it, is it, is it enjoyable? No. But when you think about all the other cool stuff that you're learning, especially when you're starting out every day, I know that even like I had a coworker at one time that was really, really, he was a shop foreman role and uh, by far the most toxic individual I've ever worked with. And probably one of the most of the top five toxic individuals I've ever met in my life. And, wow. Um, yeah. Substantial. And 
did it was it easy to work there? No, it was very difficult. But I mean, I was at a point where I was sharpening my skill set so fast. This is after my dealership tenure that um it made it worth it. You know, to be able to go in and get so so many challenges pushed towards you that you could just watch over there and you could feel yourself getting better every day. So mm-hmm. you're like this old stick in the mud, you know, fuddy-duddy jerk with a really bad attitude and a toxic mannerism and you could see yourself eclipsing him daily and it's like you can go over there and you, yeah you can stand on me and and talk shit go for it right you know in six months time i'm going to be so much better than you already are old dude that you know it, it makes it worth it eventually yes i had to i had to leave just the money wasn't there but i if if you want to do it you can you can make it you know people can you know, you just kill them with kindness, right? That's all you can do. Yeah. I mean, it. it's kind of like one of those things I always tell people, like they, like they say about marriage, uh, love is blind, marriage is an eye-opener. It's kind of like that. Like I was super passionate, and because he was so difficult to ask questions to, he was a great teacher when he was calm. Like okay. he did teach me a lot, and to this day, I will say he probably taught me the most aside from myself and just learning on the job out of anybody I've ever worked with. Because when I was at the dealership, there was no training at all. I did not get any training whatsoever. So, but what it did do for me is because I got to the point where I just hated asking him questions because I felt like he was just going to scream and yell. And it's not like he was screaming and yelling at me. He was just angry about everything. Like he wasn't very like mean just to you for no reason, just a very angry individual. And so it forced me to figure out things on my own, which did propel my career. I feel like, because after that two and a half years, which had Honda had an opening, cause I had wanted to get into the dealership from the very beginning, but this will tell you how much the industry has changed. It took me two and a half years or it took two and a half years for someone to quit that specific Honda dealership that I was trying to get in. This has been 15 years ago now, and now they can't, find that, you know, you can't beg techs enough to get in there. But 15 years ago, it took two and a half years for somebody to actually quit. One of their techs actually quit. And they had at least 10 or 12. I can't remember how many we had, probably more than that. But yeah, so the day I quit or the day the day I left, he, my, the owner was like, all right, you can go at noon because I put my two weeks in. Uh, and then at the end of the two weeks, he was like, you can go ahead and go home. My buddy called me like at 1230, right after I quit and was like, Hey, somebody just put their two weeks in. So I literally drove straight from there. I was on my way home and went straight to the dealership, applied, went and took the drug test and had the job the following week. So it worked out perfect. It was definitely meant to be. Uh, and then I, so I was at Honda for about the, I was there the first time for almost five years. (laughs) We had a personal issue my mother-in-law committed suicide so it kind of flipped our lives upside down my wife and i yeah and so i just needed something different i i I don't i didn't know what i just needed something different like Uh i was questioning everything essentially in my life so my brothers actually were opening a business and so i went and managed their store and this will tell people a lot of times like, or show them that money isn't always everything. Cause I went from 70 grand when I left the last year I was there, I was 70 grand to making $27,000 for my brothers. So 
massive pay cut, but I was so much happier because I was around family. I needed that at that time. Loved the job. It was awesome. It was like a buy, sell, trade store. So we got to see like really cool, unique stuff all the time, like antiques, collectibles, all sorts of awesome stuff. So I did really enjoy that. But then my wife got pregnant and I was like, well, we ain't going to survive with a baby making 27 grand a year. So that's when I decided to go back. And then I went back to that dealership and worked there for eight, eight or nine months. And I just, I don't know what happened. Like after that time off, I don't know if my perspective just completely flipped and I just couldn't take it anymore, but I didn't last quite a year. I, I quit there, went to another independent for four months. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of questionable things going on. So I quit there after four months. It was just not a good fit for me whatsoever. So I quit there after four months and then went to another Honda dealership. And I worked there for about a year and a half, almost two years. And that's when I started my shop. And I've been doing this for just over three years, about three and a half years now. I've been running my shop. You were a good fit at the Honda dealer. Like you said, you and I have talked lots. You enjoyed it. You made, you you had no problem turning hours. You made good money. Right. It was, yeah. you'd like the product, you're familiar with it. You know, it's just yeah. a good fit for you. You, you like that routine of knowing, you know, I mean, cause in your, in your business now, you, 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 you'll gladly call yourself a Honda specialist, right? Like you, you market yourself yeah, yeah. a Honda specialist in the local area and, and you are, you know, by all probably accounts, a better alternative for your customers with a Honda than your local dealerships, right? Like in, in how yeah, you, yeah, for sure. And how you treat them, how you go that extra mile for the service. I mean, that's that's really awesome. the The thing with the dealership, you know, and you and I have had lots of conversations like this. I was never, I couldn't turn. I mean, I could turn hours, but I got I got put into a role where I did a lot more diag and a lot more problem solving. Right, a lot of programming, a lot of diag. And I was the same as you. I didn't get any training when I was there. I mean. Training for us was all online and it was, you did it on your own time and it was to get master level certified. And that was mostly to pay uh, the warranty claims, right? So they needed you to have that so that, you know, cause I can remember at the time uh, we were all level one and level one got most of the claims paid. But then if you wanted to do like EV, if you wanted to go into diesel, you had to get up to like level two. And they, they're the same thing. Well, we need you to do these, you know, online classes. And I'm like, uh, well, when am I supposed to do them? Oh, well, when there's no work. Okay, I'm never without work, hardly ever. And then when I am without work, I'm in such a poor mood. I don't really want to do an online test because <laughs> there's no work. And then, yep. and the thing that drove me nuts was because I'd come in at a time, we're talking early 2000s, they were just starting to transition to online training. So I worked with a lot of more older established techs that were level two, level three, master techs. And I was fixing their comebacks. I was doing their diag because, and this is not shade, but they're traditional. The dealer I was at, everybody was very specialized. So like we had a guy that he did mostly almost front end all day long. And we had another guy that did a lot of air conditioning work. And we had a lot of their, you know, two guys that did trainees all day long. And we had, and then we had a lot of just generals. So general would be like, you know, they weren't strong at any one particular thing, but if the customer came in and needed no change in the tire rotation and brakes and you could upsell that right off of that. And they did the whole ticket. 
me, I had a, a knack for the, the Diag. So I was frustrated when they're like, okay, you got to get to level two and level three so that we can start getting you to do more of this. And I'm like, I'm already doing a ton of it. And I'm doing it for guys that are at level two and level three, and I'm doing their comebacks. And they got paid to go to school before there was an option where they could get, you know, two hours paid in a classroom setting to take the same course that somebody put onto a, a hard drive somewhere and, and you click on click and point. And you want me to do that now for free? I don't think that's fair. And so I never, I did, I did no training, I did none. And it, I can't say that it didn't, it hurt me. I can't say that it did because I still got all the cars fixed. You know what I mean? And yeah, the cool group of us that worked at the dealership that did that diag work, it was the same. They didn't do it either. You know, it was, it was a transition point within the industry. I interviewed with a young man the other night and he was talking about the same thing. And this is how I'm getting this around to you is because he said the same thing. He worked at a Toyota dealer and if he became Toyota master, all he made was a dollar more an hour flagged hour flat rate. That's not enough. Is it? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it was more than I was going to get. So <laughs> we, we didn't get any more master uh, when we were master certified. And I, I always want to preface this cause I actually got into a, I would say probably argument discussion, whatever with a guy on Instagram quite recently, because I, I do a lot of like dealership related reels where I'm taking jabs at dealerships because that's where the majority of my experience is. A lot of people relate to that because there are a lot of people that come into the industry and have worked at dealers at one point in time. They either currently do, they did at one point and left the industry, or they started there and went to an independent shop, or they still currently work there. And when I say this stuff, this is my experience, and this is a lot of other, and I have so much data in this because I've talked to so many people because of my pool of f community that I've built on my social media. So I, I try to tell people like, I'm not just saying this just because I talk to people every day, daily. Yeah. And he was upset because he said, you know, you got to quit taking punches at the dealership because, you know, we, we just want people to come into the industry. And I said, I, I never, ever tell anybody not to go to the dealership. People message me all the time and ask me on my Q&As on Instagram about going to the dealership. And I always encourage them what to do, how to get started, because I want them to do good. Whether they're at a dealership or an independent, I don't really care. I mean, I do care because I do think that there are really good independent shops out there. And if they can find one of those, and they're not everywhere, but there are a lot of them out there, a lot more than people think. They do have a lot more opportunity as far as paid training yes. and other benefits, and they don't have to deal with new warranty. They don't have to worry about flat rate in a lot of cases. They don't have to worry about all of the politics, which you and I both know the politics are one of the worst things. And so I say all of that because when I was at the dealership, you know, that was my experience. And for our getting our master certification, we didn't get any more money. We, they wanted us 80% more on all of our tests, on their, our online tests. And then to be able to even go to master training, uh, master certified training, you had to have 80%. I think it was actually higher than that. It's been a little bit, but the issue was, is because a lot of us, well, a few of us, I shouldn't say a lot of us, a few of us, there were three guys specifically in the first dealership that I worked at and a few more at the next dealership that we averaged 80 hours or more a week. Yeah. So when we went to 
training, we got paid 40 hours. Mm -hmm. So it was a huge pay cut for most of us. And we're like, well, why do I want to go to training when I'm making 80 hours a week and I'm only working 50? Like it doesn't really make any sense. Now I personally wanted to, I asked to go because it was just a personal accolade that I wanted. I just, it was something that I wanted personally, and I wanted to be Honda master certified. I didn't Mm -hmm. end up getting it. I was so close and I ended up just quitting too soon, but that was the frustration. And then, so that's why I've, they didn't get paid anymore. They got paid less in a lot of cases and you weren't guaranteed any more money. So it was like, well, what's the point for me to go get Honda master certified? This was just the two dealerships that I worked at personally. The young, so I, you know, I'm sure they do it differently elsewhere, but I don't, and see, that was the thing for me is like, for us, you were just a senior mechanic in the dealership. So you just got paid a set amount. That was it for flagged hour. There was no, if you had this certification and this certification, this certification, you started to ramp up your hour. That would have been a completely different incentive for me because then if I'm still doing just a break job, man, I'm getting a pretty good hourly wage while I'm just sitting here hanging a set of brakes on. Right. He, the young gentleman I spoke to the other night, he talked about like the guy that he worked with that had all the master certs. He made a dollar more and he said he didn't turn nearly as many hours because he was forever on the, on the stressful jobs, the, the crap work that, you know, because he's certified to do it, he has to do it. And I just always, you know, I'm seeing more and more guys talk about in dealerships. Well, I have this designation, this designation, my rate is this, but I've seen some of them where it's like, well, you're only getting paid that rate if you're actually doing that repair. You know what I mean? Like, okay, yeah. so you you get our hybrid techs get $50 an hour, let's say hypothetical number. And, but we're only paying them 50 when they're working on a hybrid. Well, shucks, that could be great. I could be getting $50 for working on a hybrid, but I mean, if the job is terrible and I lose my shirt on it, $50 an hour times, you know, a big old loss, still not as good as just 30 bucks an hour doing straight gravy, right? Like that's the thing that yeah. always, cause I'm a dealer guy too. And for years, you know, I, I'm not anti-dealer. I'm not. I made a lot of money and I enjoyed it. I learned a ton, but you're you're absolutely right. The politics thing just killed me because it's like just like I going back to what I said. I'm I was younger, less experienced doing their comebacks because I actually would put the time into solving the problem. I could wow, he could read a wiring diagram. You know, he could understand flow PIDs, you know, he understood fuel terms. Keep giving them that kind of work, and then it's like so I'm fixing it for all those guys that goes those inline, those didn't have to do the online course and got paid and I'm doing their comebacks. And for us, so most of the Chrysler training was two days or three, sometimes two, oh, okay. sometimes two days, three. They only, same thing. They only paid them eight hours a day when they were gone. Now they gave them eight hours pay. And then they, I think we got like, well, they'd give you a loaner car to drive. And they, so the loaner car would be full of gas. They might pitch in like 40 bucks for meals while you're gone if you had to travel so for me you had to travel to i was in ottawa tried to had to travel over to hull this is about an hour each way uh, say so you didn't have to stay in a hotel that saved them a bunch of money there um when i was in kingston and i had to travel to toronto to take training that's a two-hour drive each way so they paid for a hotel gave you a little more for food because you're eating multiple meals away, but it's same thing. Still only your eight hours a day. And I can remember guys yeah. before I was like, understood so much. I'm like, 
what are you complaining about, dude? Like they're paying eight hours. And then you realize that some of these cats, like the transmission guys, they couldn't get them to go because they were turning 12 at least a day. Right. Yeah. Like, why am I going to take yeah. four hour cut to go to class? And I'm thinking, cause you're going to class. Now I get it. I think you get paid your average and that's what you should get paid. And you can't tell me <laughs> that paying them their average is <laughs> going to break the business. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's so, so ludicrous when they start to say that training is too expensive training, all these independent shops that don't pay flat rate right now. If you think it's expensive when you pay your guys eight hours to be on training, think about the dealers then that maybe do pay the guys their average and they're paying 16 hours when he's gone because that's his average. Let's think about that for a minute. Yeah. Now it's not that expensive. You can do it. There's always the, the quote. And I know I'm pretty sure it's Mario that says this a lot. It's like, you know, they, they say, what if I pay for their training and they leave and they mm. say, well, what if you don't? And they stay. Yes. And it's so true. And like just the benefit alone in myself that I got going to ASD and I, and I don't have my wife as my only other employee and she doesn't actually physically work in the shop. She does like behind the scenes stuff. Right. So, but the benefit that I got the first year and then when she went with me and she doesn't even deal with clients every day, like I do. And when she went with me, the benefit she got from it just by sitting there, understanding and knowing the business better, uh, that alone was worth the weight of what it cost. And to be honest, it's not that expensive. The lost revenue is the biggest hit and it's still worth it, the return you get. And that's always my frustration. And that's what I constantly tell these other owners that I talk to is I'm like, you have to figure out a way to pay training. And if you can't afford it, you're not charging enough. And most of them don't know. They don't, they just, they don't know. They don't know their numbers. They don't know how to operate the business. They're still in that mechanic mindset. They've never left from being a mechanic. They think they can just work on more cars, work on more cars, work on more cars, fix more cars. They have a $200 ARO, but they're working on, you know, 10 cars a day. And it's like, well, you're never going to get anywhere that way. You're never going to make money. You're they don't, if they knew their numbers, they would know they're not making money and they could adjust and change things and have a lot less stressful life and actually be profitable and be able to go to these things to better themselves and their business, which makes you even more successful. Cause you've been very honest and upfront and said that if you hadn't gotten to ASTE, you wouldn't, your business wouldn't be where it was and you probably wouldn't still be in business, right? Oh, it would be, I would be very surprised if I was still in it today. They offered me a lot of money to come back to the dealership like a year and a half later. Maybe, I can't remember the exact dates and I apologize, but they offered me a lot more money on the hour, like an additional 650 already on the hour of what I was already making and a shop form and position. And I was already making a hundred grand when I left. So, you know, whatever that would translate to afterwards. And, but that was right when I was starting to make some changes and I could start to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. So had I not start making some changes? Absolutely. That would have looked so much better because when I finally sat down to look at the numbers, because when I left from being a tech, I was like, man, when I start hiring my own techs here at the shop, I want to be able to pay them well. Well, then once I started trying to understand the numbers, which I didn't, I had no idea what the heck I was looking at. I didn't even know what ARO means and all of the, all of these acronyms that they have. I have no idea. I was at home listening to one of the podcasts, Googling what, what all this stuff was. Cause I had no idea. 
And once I started trying to understand the numbers, this was before all that, I was like, I looked at my wife and I was like, there's no way we could ever pay somebody any decent money right now. We could never afford somebody because I was at $80 an hour. My margins were like maybe 10, 15% at the most on parts. It was horrific. And all I was focused on was fixing more cars and my ARO was ultra low, like two in the twos, somewhere in the twos. Uh, and I was doing like 75, 80 cars a month and just me by myself here in my one bay, 10 and a half foot ceiling shop. So way, way too many cars and a really low ROs. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. Like when I went to AST and I sat in on Cecil's class and he started talking about all these, I was the same way, the acronyms, right? Now, thank goodness it was a beginner class. So it's like he would give the acronym and then tell you what it meant. And I'd write it into my notebook real quick and, and all that kind of stuff. But I'm still amazed when, when the guys get talking, you hear David and Lucas and they start ramming them all. I have to go grab the notebook and say, what did he say again? What did that mean? Cause I don't, I don't speak like that. Right. Like it's just so different, but I'm starting to understand what is, what they're talking about, you know? And I think it's very powerful stuff and I wish more would attend. And even if you can't attend, you've, they've heard me say it, Get a coach and listen to what they actually listen. There's no point in getting a coach if you're not going to implement it. Don't waste your friggin' money. Go do something else. But get a coach no doubt. and and do what they're talking about. When he talks about the margins and he says, you've got to be charging this in order to do that, don't go, there's no way it'll work here. Because they'll come back at you and show you that, well, 98% of the time it does work. So what makes you think so? you're so special that you're going to be in the 2% that it doesn't? That attitude frustrates me, you know. The I tell people all the time when people say that doesn't work here, I tell them my shop then is the exact opposite of what wouldn't work here. Um, because they say most people, I think it's seven miles. They don't want to drive more than seven miles for a car repair. My average customer drives over 20 minutes. I have multitudes of customers that drive an hour to my shop um, that bring their cars to me. So I disprove a lot of those stats that they say where people will actually go to a shop. They won't, they're like, Oh, well, they won't do this. They won't do that. Well, they do that here. I think there's a lot that goes into that. And I think when, when somebody says that won't work here, they're right because they believe that it won't work. And you are your own worst enemy. I was my own worst enemy in the beginning. I felt like, Oh, there's no way I can raise my labor rates. There's no way I can charge that much on parts. All you have to do is understand why you need to do it, how to explain it, and then take the time to help the customer understand it. And that's the huge gap you see in a lot of shop owners that are not business owners. They don't know how to talk to people. And I preach this constantly all the time online is you have to learn how to create a customer experience. You have to take the time to help them understand, show them the value of what you're giving them and why it costs this much. There's a reason why. There's a reason why a doctor charges $500 an hour. There's a reason lawyers charge $200 an hour. There's a reason we need to charge what we need to charge. But unfortunately, a lot of people think that it's just, oh, well, they need, they have a broken car. I tell them what they need and they fix it but that's not the way it works at all. I had someone tell me that recently about how why advisors shouldn't make more than tax. That's a conversation that you and I talked about the other day. And I'm like, 
And I told him, I said, you, you don't understand. You need that advisor role because his response was, well, I can go up there and sell a job, but they can't come back here and fix a car. And I was like, no, 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 no. I said, I see plenty of shop owners every day that can't sell crap. And he's like, well, if they come in with brakes and a radiator that need fixed, he said, you know, they're going to fix it. And I said, no, they don't. I get cars all the time that just have me diagnose it and they don't want me to fix it because there's always somebody willing to do it cheaper. Always. You'll see me post memes after meme after meme that there's always somebody willing to do it cheaper. There's always a backyard mechanic. There's always a cheaper shop down the street. What you have to do is take that time and explain to them why you're worth what you're charging, what you offer that they don't offer and what you're going to do for them because they think a repair is a repair. And we all know that are in the industry, a repair is not a repair. It's not the same. You're not comparing apples to apples. We just talked about that before you and I got online like tonight about your customer today that you didn't qualify him. You said you, we started the conversation before we hit record said you didn't qualify him good enough because there was the young man that had, you know, Highlander with the, or not a Highlander, excuse me, a Ridgeline, you know, an alternator towed it to your shop, $150 to be towed to your shop, $150 for your diagnostic to check the charging system, confirm the alternator's bad. They then had it paid 150 to have it towed back out for fill us in, Chris, who's going to put the alternator in his f- family member. <laughs> So I don't, and that's the thing. Some other people would get frustrated with that, right? They would be very mad, very angry, throw up their hands and say, this industry sucks. And you laugh at it, right? And that's, yeah. that, that to me is, is I don't want to say progress because as long as I've known you, you've had this kind of that, that attitude. But for people listening, understand that when you get to the point to where you can, that one customer leaving doesn't break you doesn't ruin your day think of the enlightenment you now have because here's the here's the best part you still got your 150 diag charge that's what you said to me i still got my 150 diag i had my conversation with him when he wanted to show up with his own part and i wouldn't enable that for him and explain to him why so if you're comfortable having a conversation with the customers about why you have to do it the right way have that conversation if you're not comfortable hire somebody, but make sure the conversation is still being had as to why we don't want to install customer supplied parts and why we do not want to do free diag, right? We see it all the time. We talk, there's a post today, customers got an SOP. Who can we refer to somebody in a certain area to install, you know, a strut mount, (laughs) you know, one, one, but for that matter. And the customer has the mount. I mean, I, yeah, I wouldn't even do that job because uh, I'm not like to, the liability. And this isn't a weather. Can you just install a spring? Can you just install a mount? All you guys just want to jam quick struts in. Yeah, there's reasons we want to do it. It's not because they're fast. It's because it's called CYA, cover your blank. You know, we're yeah. doing that to prevent a comeback. We're doing that to prevent, you know, um, changing the strut out because it leaks and having the coil spring break next month and having to charge the customer to go in and do the repair again and do the alignment again and so on and so forth. And I'm sorry if the customer was to say to me, just change the strut because it's leaking now and the spring broke and then they were mad at me and wanted me to warranty something, not happening, right? If I was to, uh, well, to dictate the process, if I do the process the way I yes. want, 
There's no point. There's no, we're not even having that discussion. I'm doing what I can to prevent you from having something that you don't think can happen to you, but we that see it all day long in the bays know it can. That's why we're doing it that way. You hit the nail right on the head. You don't allow the customer to dictate the way you operate your business. And I I say that a lot on social media and I always remind people like, I'm not saying that maliciously towards the customer. The customer doesn't know better. They, they don't know. It's our job to educate them. Prime example, I had a Lexus that I did valve cover gaskets on. Well, they had just had spark plugs and a timing belt, not them, but they bought it previously from someone else. They had just had spark plugs done in this thing. They did a timing belt too. You're right there. The valve cover gaskets are right there. You have to pull the intake manifold off. They're notorious for leaking in those 3.3 Toyota motors. Like, why wouldn't you just do it all at once? Hey, we're going to go ahead and do spark plugs. We got It's all this labor to this. If you pay just a couple more hours or whatever, you're going to charge to do the valve cover gaskets. And for the gaskets, it's going to save you way a bunch of money down the road mm-hmm. to do it now while you're in there. But we do not do a good job at educating them and explaining to them again why. Now, granted, there are going to be some people that just don't have the money. That's okay. Like the guy with the Ridgeline, he... I took the time, like you said, I explained to him, I, I ran through the process, you know, I can't install your part. We make money on the parts. I openly tell people that all the time. I am not scared one bit to tell someone that I make money on parts. I tell them it's the cost of doing business. I tell them it's a liability. If, if I install your alternator and it catches on fire and your car goes up in flame, I said, guess who's liable for it? Me, because I, even though it's your alternator, I installed it. And there's no warranty. My warranty will not cover it. I pay for my warranty. I have to pay monthly for it and they don't cover your part. So that's why he was thankful. He said, I appreciate all your help. I charged him my diag fee and he's on his way and he does whatever, whether he's not saving very much money. And I think it's kind of goofy, but whatever, he doesn't have the money. He doesn't have the money or whatever his decision is. But at the end of the day, like you said, you don't allow the customer to dictate. And there are some times where you don't fold, whether they don't have the money or not. Like when I do timing chain jobs on a Honda 2.4, I do VTC actuator. I do every single gasket and seal. I do guides. I literally do it all. I tell them, and when pe- I get that call all the time, can you price me out timing chain on my Honda CRV? And I'm like, I tell them right up front, I'm like, I am not going to be the cheapest. I will actually probably be one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive quotes you're going to get. But here's what I can tell you is you're not going to be going back in there in 50 to 60,000 miles. As long as you do regular oil changes, this will all last you 200,000 miles plus or longer, as long as you're doing 5,000 mile oil changes or sooner. And they always are like, Oh, I, I had no idea. I had just got a quote for, you know, whatever, like ultra cheap. And I said, yeah, they're using aftermarket trash timing components. And I said, you're going to be back to me in 30,000 miles because the tensioner fails and your timing chain skipped four teeth and your car runs like garbage. And so that, but nobody, all of the shops that they called between the first shop that diagnosed it and then me, they've called yeah. around for quotes, not a single shop told them this never gave they just quoted the price and that's another thing too i don't give them a price which i also think throws people off because i'm like i will tell you i'll probably be the most expensive but i'm not even going to give you an estimate over their phone they're like oh you won't i'm like no you have to bring it into the shop so i can inspect it to see what all it needs i said what if i quote you i don't know 
$3,000 timing chain job or whatever. I don't even know what, what it would cost, but $3,000 timing chain job and your subframes rusted out in the rear and it's about ready to fall off the car. And then, you know, I do the timing chain job, never look at that. And then you drive down the road two days later and your subframe falls off or your control arm falls off or something. I'm like, you'd be pretty daggone angry at me. And they're like, oh yeah, that's true. I would be. And I'm like, I need to give you an overall health report of your vehicle so you can know how to spend your money. Mm-hmm. You can't make a good educated decision without being educated. Yeah. And that's the thing. We're too scared to go into a long, and I understand it, right? Eric Merchant and I talked about that because sometimes customers call and they want to have a 20, 30 minute conversation. And that could be tough to have that because over the phone, right? Because you're educating them, but you may never see them again. You may not be a customer. That's 30 minutes you lost at the end of the day times if it's just one phone call a day. We have to, at some point, have a little bit more education going towards the customer to show them what it is we're doing that's different and why there's value in it. But we can't be continually trying to just win them over with a whole yeah. bunch of babble and, and nice talk that they want to hear. You know, I'm not, I'm not advocating for just say anything, just say yes to anything and get them in. We have to educate them as to why. And it's you're, you're exactly right. It's not about price. If somebody calls up and says, hey you know, I, I need a starter. It just turns and it only clicks. Can you do a starter? I say, well, I kind of need to see the car to know why it's just clicking because it would really suck if you showed up with a starter in hand and I take your starter off and then we put the starter on and it still doesn't start. And somebody puts a bar on the crank bolt and the engine seized up or we put a, what about if somebody calls and says my, my engine's locked up and it ends up being that there's an alternator seized. Yep. Yeah, it's why seen that before. Turn over. A, a friend talked to me about it just the other day. You know, a slow crank on a Ford alternator bush bearing seized. So, you know, we jump to, and that's the same thing. We jump to all kinds of conclusions. I'm like, well, if it's a Ford, if for me, I'd cut the belt off first and see if it's actually, you know, just because I have seen them do that without any kind of inclination of no previous noise, no nothing. It's just one morning that sucker locks up and it doesn't turn the engine over. Well, imagine if you had the customer come in, then you got to backpedal, discount the part, eat the labor, do the job over and put their old part back on and go, sorry, I tried to help you out here with your diagnostic, not mine, and it didn't fail. We need to stop doing that nonsense. It's 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 not their business. They don't run it for us. We run our business, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's what I told the guy that had his that had his car towed out here. I said, at the end of the day, I got bills to pay just like you. And I said, I understand if you don't have the money, you don't have the money. I said, but my bills don't change, you know, whether or not, you know, you, you can or cannot pay me. I still got to pay my bills at the end of the day. And like I said, I, I don't mind having those conversations with people. I'm just very candor, I guess, with them. And absolutely, we can't. That that's one thing. It was a discussion today, and one of the I think it's like a, a new shop owners group or something like that. And somebody said, "How do you talk to customers about charging for Diac?" He was just asking a question, and I said, I gave him a couple tips and and recommendations, and then I I said the hardest one seems to be somebody calling and saying, "I need a blank, an alternator," and I already know that's what I need. And so what I tell people, and this works for me, it may not work for everybody. It, this is what I do. And I'm, I'm 
modifying. And like you said, we do need to take time with people. And I've slowly gotten better because I do take too long sometimes. And then I don't, that customer never comes back. And that's okay. Like I don't mind educating people, but again, at the end of the day, I got bills to pay just like everybody else. So I can't be doing that. So I, you do get better. You start to change things. You start to be a little bit quicker. You get straight to the point. You don't second guess yourself and say things multiple times. So that does come down. But back to my point is they say, you know, I need an alternator. And so what I tell people is like, I I completely understand, you know, did anybody diagnose it? I always ask them, did anybody actually diagnose it? Well, no, I just, this is what happened, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Well, I understand that you are convinced that it needs an alternator. Like they'll sometimes call you, I know it needs an alternator. And I say, that's absolutely fine. I totally understand. And you might be right. There's absolutely a, a possibility that you might write. But here's the thing. Me as a professional, if you brought that to me, towed it, and I put an alternator in there and you spent five, well, I don't know, I just did one not too long ago. It was a thousand dollars for the freaking alternator. I mean, we spent a thousand dollars of your hard-earned money and it's not an alternator. I said, we're both going to be really upset. You're going to be upset because you just threw a thousand dollars away and I'm going to be upset because I didn't do my due diligence to diagnose the vehicle and charge you for that as a professional and tell you for sure that's what it needs. Yes, it's if it if it's an alternator, and we know it needs an alternator, you're going to pay for that diagnosis if I confirm it's an alternator. Yeah. But we know that you're spending your money towards something that needs to be replaced. We're not just guessing. And that's how I have that conversation. Does it always work? No, because they some people are only looking for price and they're going to find a shop that will shotgun that part at it. And I can tell you there's been situations where they do that. And guess what? They end up calling me and having the car towed because whatever that was didn't fix it. The other person put that part on and then couldn't figure it out. And so then they brought it to me. And I, I learned a long time ago, and I used to say it all the time to the advisors, and it used to drive them nuts because easy math, right? Let's say your thousand dollar alternator. Let's say your diag is. Let's say the door rate's a hundred bucks. Now that alternator is a thousand dollars. Let's say the alternator's not being fielded. It's not being turned on. There's a circuit going open to it. That's 10 hours you can spend to find that circuit problem. That's 10 hours of diag you can find before you get to the cost of just the part alone, right? When you put it in numbers, it's easy like that. Why is it? Why are we still doing it so differently in this industry? I don't understand that because the misdiagnosis is so wrong. It is so expensive. And yet, and it used to frustrate me when I would talk to these people and you, you know how it is. They put the part on, it's still broke. They're now asking for help and you know, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't give them a help anymore. I just had to say, do you know how much diag time you could have sold when you put that fuel pump in and the tank and all the lines and it was a rotted ground, you know, do you know how much diag time you could have sold hours? You could have sold a day's worth, right? I want to sell as much diag time as possible. I don't want to sell repairs in my twisted sense of reality. If everything was just a broken wire, I'd love it. It'd be so easy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I'm and not, you know, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, because I'm not fighting with a rotted fuel tank. I'm not fighting with rotted fuel lines, or just an example. I'm not breaking a bolt off to get the alternator out of the bracket, right? I'm not I'm not mucking with any of that kind of stuff. I'm just yeah. okay, an open wire now. I gotta go find it. Perfect. Or I gotta run an overlay. Awesome. You know, I'm not dealing with all that stuff that can go wrong, but when somebody's got a brand new all shiny alternator in there from wherever and you go up four inches from the connector and you fix the bro the break in the wire, you know, Paul Danner's got probably dozens of videos by that by now that have something similar. 
we all look like a, we all look like fools in the industry. And, and I know why it happens because at that point you can't return it. So you got to give the customers some kind of excuse, some kind of break, some kind of whatever. They're the ones that still but that's loop. the problem I see in my area is a lot of shops do not give them a break. They charge them full boat and then say, <laughs> oh, well, we couldn't figure it out. I ha- like We had this conversation not too long ago where a client of mine who has a vehicle is under warranty. They told him that he needed an injector. It's a Chevrolet GM product, and it started misfiring. And I said, it probably needs a lifter. He called me, and they told me what was going on. And I said, well, it's still under warranty. It probably needs a lifter. Dealership told him injector. Then they put an injector in, and guess what? Didn't fix it. Then they said, oh, well, the injector ruined the lifter, and now you need a lifter. And the dealership charged him $1,800 for an injector, but the lifter was covered under warranty. And he paid it. And I told him from the very beginning, I said, you should absolutely do not pay for that. They misdiagnosed it, and now you're paying for their misdiagnosis. That is what we need to get rid of, that kind of trash. And that frustrates me. And I I hate talking that way because – I love this industry. And a lot of times we can get on the negative and I absolutely love this industry. I did a video on this not too long ago. Like this has supported my family for 15 years. I started a a shop with this industry. Customers come to me and I create relationships and now I can support my family. My wife stays at home with our kids, which is fantastic. I do social media with it now. Like I love this industry. And it's great. So I don't, I I know a lot of times we get talking on the negative, but that kind of stuff does frustrate me because we, we don't need that kind of stuff. It makes us look terrible and shops need to guarantee their diagnosis more is what I'm trying to say is that if you misdiagnose it, guess what? The customer doesn't pay. You screwed up. It was a learning experience. Chalk it up as a, as a learning experience. It was free or not free. It was a, a inexpensive schooling. Uh, essentially you eat the diag you eat the part you you figure it out and if you can't figure it out find somebody who can and you just move on and guess what i bet you never do that again never but you never do it again you'll learn your limitations right that's what i used to say for years so many of us need to learn our limitations right if you're not good at something and a customer comes in and they need that one thing refer them sublet them yeah be- just be honest. Just be honest and say, I'm not your AC guy. I really am not. That's me putting my hand up. I'm not your AC guy. I'm, I'm terrible at it. I hate it. You know, like, uh, d- don't ask. Don't ask. It just frustrates me. That, that's me with EVAP. Remember, we were talking about that. I'm, uh, EVAP, for some apparent reason, just I just can't wrap my mind around. It's so, so dumb. So <laughs> I know why some people do because, like, for years, a lot of people didn't get involved in it because doesn't affect how the car runs just ignore it so i my 100 percent. for a lot of times people didn't get a lot of practice because it was one of them where it's turning the money light on but it doesn't really you know don't worry about it car's not going to be a problem now we know as we get more educated that there are lots of evap issues that can happen that can definitely change how the car runs right oh bunches yeah i had a mazda with a shorted fuel tank pressure sensor that wiped out the five volt that thing wouldn't run it put codes in all kinds of modules uh from the the transmission the mass airflow had no five volts to it it was shorted so did that take me a while to find you bet it did but the only way i saw it was i was sitting there staring at data when i was like uh my mass airflow if i unplug it doesn't make a lick of difference this thing won't go into it won't go into closed loop it won't run right it's bucking and running and shifting all weird 
And I'm sitting here looking at data because that's what I do a lot. And I'm like, fuel tank pressure sensor says it's like 300 PSI. That can't, right? It should be blown the tank. Like, I should be, you know, side down the roof. It's kind of. And so I went back there, unplugged the thing, keyed it, runs normal. Runs like a brand Jeez. new thing. And it ended up being wire in the water in the corrosion in the harness back underneath the trunk down towards the rear frame. Like it didn't take me, it took me longer than it should have. But I, when the customer, he comes in, he goes, I'm paying how much labor for three hours? What? And he's looking at me like that. And I said to him with, and this is what I can say with all confidence in the world at this point. I'm like, I showed him, well, there's a thing called Identifix, and there's also a technical bulletin right from Mazda that would have told you if you had a 101 DTC and weird things. I said, you could have gone to any shop probably in this city. And I said, if you'd definitely gone to the dealer, you'd have gotten a new mass airflow at 500 bucks, and it wouldn't have fixed the car. And then I said, I don't know what they would have done after that. I said, I bet you they'd have shotgunned an ECM in it. So I said, you'd have been well over a grand in parts that didn't fix it. And I said, so that's why we're charging you, you know, three hours labor. So, which is a deal to be quite honest. <laughs> right. It is because, but he was, and again, we didn't qualify him well, but he left without being able to say that they couldn't fix the car. You know what I mean? And that's my right. end goal. I, I, I'm going to give you back either your car in exactly the same condition and you're not going to pay anything, or I'm going to give you back a fixed car. That's it. You're never going to leave me, and that should be the goal of a lot of us, without being able to say they fixed it. That's a yep. you, know, you can gripe about the price. You can say my coffee in the waiting room sucked. You can say the music was too loud. You can say it didn't have my shirt tucked in. I'm good with all of it. But you have to leave saying they fixed it begrudgingly. I'm good with it. I'm cool. You know, it's it is what it is. But the way he was was just like because to him. Oh, it's just some, you know, some green goo on a wire. Yeah. Do you know how many, yeah. how many wires are in your car? Do you know how hard it is to find which wire is, uh, that got the green goo, like, you know, frustrating, but he was, uh, he had other issues with that car. So, you know, it was, it was what it was. I mean, we couldn't do anything more about it. He, um, it was not, uh, in great shape when he bought it. It was a used car. And it had other issues. So he, um, we haven't seen him since. I think he flogged the car, which is fine. But that was, that was an interesting one. But that's the thing. Like, if you had to put a 500, I see it all the time with the Nissan when you talk to different guys online, you see the TikToks and the YouTubes. And it's, Nissan, it's like, oh, it's got a $550, you know, new mass airflow sensor in it. And it's still got a 101 code. And it's like, yep, clean the throttle body, do the software update, you know, change the PCV valve and the 101 will go away. You never have to change the mass airflow. I did a bunch of those technical bulletins. I never had one yet that had a bad math. If it had a bad math, it was because they put in from eBay or something. And then you had to. Oh, yeah. Sorry, you got to go buy, a, a you know, an OE one now at 500 bucks. Where's your old one? Oh, we threw it in the trash. Yeah, you shouldn't have done that. So seen that a bunch on on Hondas. Yeah, bunch. Right? I had one like that. Yeah, I had an aftermarket mass airflow sensor installed by a chain shop, and mm-hmm. they brought it to me. And their complaint was it just didn't run right. No, no codes, no nothing. They said just something didn't feel right. And I drove it, and right away I'm like, man, I'm like, this feels like a mass airflow sensor. And that, 
I feel like the only way, because I diagnosed it pretty quickly, which you and I have talked a lot. I'm not uh, great. Like diagnostic testing is not my strong suit. And so, but because I've worked on Hondas so long, and this is what I tell people why it's so good to go to a specialist, because we get so familiar with the vehicle. Mm-hmm. So right away I test drive, I'm like, holy crap. I'm like, this thing just does not, it did not feel like a clogged cat. It just was underpowered. And I was like, man, I ran the VE test. I checked all of my data, everything passed flying colors. It was perfect. I was messaging a friend of mine who's really good. That's all he does literally all day long is diagnostic testing. It's probably, I think it was last year sometime, whatever. Anyways, long story short, I pulled the math out. Look, nothing, no debris, nothing. Like I said, no codes. And I just told him, I'm like, hey, there's no codes. The math is passing all the tests. Everything looks good by normal standards. I said, but there's just something that just doesn't feel right about this mass airflow. I said, we need to put a Honda one back. And I said, I said, I've never come across this before. Normally they'll throw some sort of code. They'll have bad data, something. There's something that makes it off. Long story short, put an OEM one on there, ran like a champ. They called me like the next day or something like, oh my gosh, this hasn't driven this good. And however long they took it to that chain shop and then nobody had any idea. They just said it just felt different. Yeah. When just just wild, you talked about, you know, we don't want to talk about the negative all the time. Right. But I feel like sometimes we have to, and I don't, I think what we, what I mean to say is we can talk about what needs to be addressed and where we need to improve without being at negative, but we have to keep it like, we have to be honest. We have to keep it straight. Right. People know me. I say just straight talk, just, give it to me straight because we we're we're messing up still way more than we should in this industry we're better than we were i guarantee i i feel that in my soul from 10 years ago when i started to network with people i see the general ability and aptitude at least with diagnostics starting to come up i see it getting better i see more and more people that don't need to rely on identifix to fix a car and that makes me feel happy when i talk about how many people and now they start to know who scanner danner is and all the other luminaries in our in our industry right that that are strong at that kind of stuff i feel like we're making progress but now and it seems sometimes chris when we start to address the the work that needs to be done in the industry it seems like we're putting more of the microscope onto the owners or management. And that I feel like it's come back the other way where it used to be. We always put the, the onus on the techs weren't what they needed to be. And somebody had an interesting conversation today. I don't know if you saw it. And they were talking about how, you know, overselling yourself. Mm, yeah, I did see that. Yeah. And it's, it's funny, right? Because our mutual friend, Brian and I discussed this. So here's, here's my thing. Who in the industry right now is more guilty of overselling themselves? The the shop to the customer or the tech to the shop? Hmm. You know? That's a really good question. Yeah. It, I I don't I don't actually know. That that is a good question. So I it's hard for me, right? Like I because I have these conversations on TikTok a lot and stuff and do a lot of these videos, I get to see the comments back and forth and it, most of them are techs upset with owners. And so I completely understand. I have worked for bad owners. I've worked for the first dealership that I worked for. The owner had literally so many cars that he bought one and had to store it at the dealership because he had filled his garage with lifts. So he had 
lifts in each bay. So he had two cars per bay in his garage. It was at least an eight bay garage at his house. And so he was building an additional garage to store more cars while we were all getting paid subpar compared to other dealerships. And they kept, they all, they would always say, Oh, well, we can't pay as much as they do in the city. That's what they would always tell us. Lo and behold, that was a lie because when that service manager left and the new service manager took over, he took the three highest hour turners, me and two other guys, and gave us all $6 an hour raises right on the spot. Like he said, I don't want you guys to leave. I think at that time I was making $18 an hour or $18.50. And so I went from $18.50 to $22.50 or whatever it was. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I was under 20 and I went to a good amount over 20 in one day, which was amazing. Like obviously that was huge for me. So I've been there. I've worked for bad owners. But what I tell people all the time is, is you can say all you want about owners but and there's always the question about pay. Like that's the number one thing I see is all oh, well, I deserve more pay. I deserve more pay. And I'm like, that's great. If you're good, then you probably do. But most of you aren't, unfortunately. Everybody thinks they're fantastic. I thought I was great. I I learned quickly that I wasn't that great. I deserve more pay. I finally was put to the test. And I think if that's you're good, part of the issue. Like, then you probably you do. Out if you're good, but leave the most dealership of you and go work for an independent shop. Or Everybody start your thinks own they're shop fantastic. Like I then you'll I find out I was really great. how good you are. Because I, I learned myself in that situations where I'm great until I finally was put to the test. I really shouldn't have done this to myself. That's when you can really, really figure it out. And I think it does happen both ways a lot like techs definitely oversell themselves in a lot of cases shops definitely oversell themselves to customers i will say now i turn down way more work than i take in mm-hmm. as far as new clients i have a lot of new people call me constantly about certain jobs or something like that and i'm like no it's not for me timing chain jobs on fords i could probably have one a week out here and i turn them all down i have no interest in it, it being a one bay shop short ceilings it's hard for me to lift trucks up and down. It's pointless for me. My margins would go out the window. And I just tell people, I'm like, hey, if you wanted me to do that job, I would have to charge a lot more than everyone else to keep my margins where they need to be. So you probably don't want me to do it. And so that they're happy with that answer. And there's a big liability on them too, right? Especially on engine work. Because I see the guys talking all the time. And it's like somebody just asked um, uh, Rich Ford boss this morning. Uh, in his live chat about, well, they're going to do phasers in my Ford next week. Should they do chains? And Rich is like, well, you don't have to do chains, but you really should while you're in there. Like, you you know, he's saying I've done countless phaser jobs and not had to put a chain in it, but you really should do it while you're in there because, you know, and this is the thing is that really I was the same way. I thought when I got into the, when I left the dealer, I thought I was, the man i thought i could fix it you know and then yes my hand shooting up when i go and work on an independent and all of a sudden yeah i don't know nearly as much as i thought i did it's like well if it was a chrysler i'd already done this but it's not a chrysler and uh this one's got a mass airflow and all the chryslers have a map so you know what the heck do i do right but there's there's where experience like going back to your story is such a Experience and familiarity with a product and a product line um, 
I think that's where some people get into problems when they're hiring techs because people have heard me say it before. You'll hire a guy and he's like yourself, four years, six years, eight years experience on a, at a dealership. He knows that product line really well. And you may hire that guy and go, well, I got a lot of those cars that come in here. He's going to work out great or she. And then you realize when they get in there and they work on something, a completely different brand. And all of a sudden they're really struggling, right? And it's because they don't have that familiarity with how the car feels and how the car drives. This is sometimes I see the frustration with an owner when they say, well, I hired a guy. He had been, you know, he said he had 10 years experience on doing Diag, but yet he's, he's, you know, he's, his hours suck on it. He's doing terrible. I asked them, well, what did he work on before per, per, predominantly? And what do you have him working on now? Because, you know, it's, it's a huge thing. So people that are shop owners and you're looking to hire, I think sometimes their expectations are, well, he says he's ASE certified in whatever LA, you know, whatever the numbers are, I don't know them and, and can do drivability. That doesn't mean he can do drivability. You know, it means that he passed the test. He's got a bit of an understanding or she of, of what's going on, but they don't necessarily have a refined process of how to diagnose the car. And that's what it took me networking with Brian a lot, Brian Pollock, shout out buddy, to really understand process versus just fixing cars, right? He has such a refined process that he could fix it. Brandon Steckler, same way, right? Keith Perkins, but mm-hmm. all of them, Paul Dander, they all have a process. Even some, yeah. when you're watching them, you don't even see it, but when you, you know, they have one. Oh yeah. You get a guy that comes from a dealership. Sometimes there's not a process there. It's more instinct and familiarity. I know all that was yep. still fix a lot of cars that way. And it's so Understand when you're hiring people, you've got to give them, I think, a little more time to see what their process is. And then I think we need to go about it where we're not necessarily putting them, okay, it's great to get them training. But if you have a process, teach that process to them because that's ultimately what is going to be the smoothest for them. And not every, no two people are exactly the same. But if you teach them your process and it's how you want things done, it's going to minimize the confusion in the shop. That's what I think, you know. I agree. I mean, you you need that stuff in place anyways. And that, that for me, as far as diagnostic testing and stuff goes, that's where I always shoot myself in the foot because I don't have a hard set process. And so I always, what ends up happening with me, I find, is that I go way too deep and I bypass all of the simple stuff that I know I should have checked in the first place and then come back and I'm like punching myself in the face like oh my gosh you dummy like you know this you know this why do you like in your mind you build up this huge problem every time and it's not it's it's not a huge problem I mean sometimes it is but in most cases it's not and you're like Oh, and I, I don't know why that is. I, you know, you definitely need processes and that's in everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk about processes in business and time management, uh, running the shop and the way you handle customers and your flow of work. You need processes every day. When I first started my shop, I had no processes. I didn't know what the heck a process was to be completely honest. And, you know, you add that with 
taking on anything and everything, trying to be everybody's hero. You know, I was working on lawnmowers and four wheelers and all sorts of stuff. And now I look back now, granted, I will say, I'm going to throw this in here because I took a four wheeler in, I went to a power sports store and they were, I went to go buy parts and they had their labor rate posted on the wall. And at that time I was 115 an hour and they were at 125 an hour. Amazing. And I was like, you have got to be crapping me. So I went home that day and jumped my rate to 125 an hour. I was like, there is absolutely no way I'm going to let a power sports store. And I'm not, please, I'm not talking down on anybody who works on that stuff. I'm just saying there is a lot more stuff on a car. And so there's, it's a lot more tools and equipment, everything. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to let this place charge more than me. Like, that's what I thought in my mind. I'm like, and as my own dumb fault, I was the one holding myself back because I thought this is where I needed to be. And this is what I could charge. It had nothing to do with them. It was all me. Yeah. It's crazy. Isn't it right? When you think about like a side-by-side and they'll charge $125 an hour to work on it. And what is there? Probably 10 circuits and the whole stupid thing. Right. And it's yep. like, you're fixing cars. <laughs> that have a hundred times the amount of wires alone in the damn thing right plus yeah it we've done so many we're so we're so behind in this industry we're so behind that's the way i very very behind we're very behind because i used to say we're so screwed we're so screwed and now i say we're just behind and that's a sign for me of i'm starting to get i'm starting to see progress and i'm starting to see um when you talk about you know why do you overanalyze it and why do you make it a big deal what that should tell you chris is that you're starting to actually really get this stuff and you're starting to understand it because what your brain is telling you is it can't be that easy well it certainly can it can be that easy but you've got to have that confidence to be like okay it really can be that easy and then once you get there man it just starts happening for you and then you're like and then you start to see all the things that are in common from make to make and model to model instead of what makes them different and then you want to see a scary individual that's that's our that's our buddy like he just he knows what so much of them are in common that he's just he's fixing the common things right everything is is yeah everything becomes common to him and it, it's a it's scary man he's yeah it's i i feel like you know, nobody is really over overselling themselves with any kind of malice. You know, it's a situation we were talking today and it's like, I'm not going to necessarily like, I'm a, I give a pretty honest interview. I'll tell you what I like to do, what I don't like to do, um, what I'm good at, what I'm not. And people will look at me and go, well, you're better at that than you said you were. Yeah. But who I compare myself to or the standards that I hold myself to, I suck at that. <laughs> That's why I feel like the way I do about Diag, I, I see all these guys. And then when I ask Brian a question or something, I'm like, oh my gosh, hey, but mad props to him. Like, you know, he, he, that day that I was working on that parasitic draw that had been, you know, I showed you guys the letter and everything. And, it, you know, he had showed that he had charged a thousand dollar retainer. And I was like, you know what? Like, it's a confidence thing. It's a hundred percent a confidence thing. Cause I saw that and I was like, you know what? Screw it. So I texted the customer. I said, Hey, listen, you know, there's been lots of hands in here, lots of parts replaced, lots of things going on. It's going to be $500 to start. And she said, where do I pay? Yeah. Didn't even question it. And I had 
in my head, I already talked myself out of that. And I told her, I said, I may not need all the $500. Like, you know, some people hear that they're like, oh, you're ripping the customer off and blah, and all this. They they like go off the deep end. And um, it, it, no, you have to charge what you're worth, especially if somebody else has been in there and you're chasing down other problems that they've had their hands into. Now, listen, to, to I'll just give one brief description. They had an entire, whatever, eight by, eight by 16 piece of paper completely filled with notes on this car of what all had been done to it, what they had already tried. So, but anyway, so, but this is what we have to do. We have to get to the point where we're confident enough to charge. Like I said, we are our own worst enemies. You tell somebody to raise their rates and they're like, oh, I can't do that. I'm like, yeah, I bet you if you raise your rate $30 tomorrow, not one person will say a word. And if one person does say a word and I'm wrong, guess what? The other 99% aren't and that one person will go somewhere else and you've made way more money off the people that are willing to pay you your services. That's what I I saw a lady, uh, a customer of mine, she had posted online because she cleans houses and she said, why is it that people that know me want a discount? And I said, not every customer is your customer. You fire that customer and you take the ones that are willing to pay you what you're worth. And there's always the the discussion of fair. I hate that term. Like, oh, I want to be fair. I'm like, what, what is fair, fair to you and fair to me and fair to them and fair to the other person is all different. What you need to do is figure out what you need as a business to pay all of your overhead, pay yourself and guess what? Make a profit at the end of the day. And that's how you figure out what you need to be charging and then raise it as inflation goes up. It's, this is a great time to bring this up. A friend of mine who owns a couple uh, really big commercial businesses, he said he called HVAC to come and it was over $200 just for them to show up, people, just for them to show up to the door before they even touched a thing. That's right. Yep. Because they have to pay for the person back at the office who took the the call. They have to pay for the mm-hmm. service fan that's full of tools to show although not as many tools as what's in any technical <laughs> box. Let's be straight about that. They have to pay for the travel time, right? They have to pay for the fuel and the thing. And everybody goes, oh, well, okay, I can kind of see why they charge so much. Man, we're doing just the same, right? You still yeah. drive into the shop. You still have, you maybe have a tow truck in your fleet. That sucker doesn't run on wishes and dreams, right? You have to go and no. pick up cars or whatever. We, we need to stop thinking about that, that kind of stuff. The fair, fair is an undefiable word from that perspective, right? Because it's not fair. Okay. So if I am fair with Mrs. Smith and the bill should have been $250 and I charged her 220, it's unfair that that's $30 less I can give to my staff. That's unfair. Exactly. Right. It's it's exactly right. That's, and and that's what happens. If we want to, and I'm not, I don't want to, I want to have a podcast one day where we don't discuss flat rate versus salary. Cause I mean, you know, um, but here's the thing. When we discount the work, what are you doing? You, you think you're being fair to the customer now? You're putting your customer above the value that you have for your employees. That's not okay. Right. And that's not flat rate. That's forget about it being a flat rate incentivize anything. If it's if you're constantly doing that, worried about what is fair, you are constantly limiting how well you can treat yourself 
your family, your employees, and your employees' family. And I don't think anybody gets in the business intentionally thinking that I don't want to provide the people that work for me with a great you know, living. Like you talked about, you're in this for the long game, right? So you said to me something really poignant last week where you said, I want to be able to hire a really good tech and pay them better than anyone else around can pay them. You said you realize that you have to do that. You're in here for the long game of you want to be able to go past this location that you're at, this, you know, one man show. You want to develop something. Yeah. That's a wonderful thing. It costs money. So every person you even think right now, maybe you're being unfair to, you have to think about where that money for later is going to come from. Well, you're making it now, you know? Well, that's the thing. It's like, they say fair. And then they say, and I, it's always, I I just want to be fair and help people out. And I'm like, yeah, but discounting everything and not making any money for yourself and not being able to grow your business and pay for things is not being fair to the customer. You're not, you're not going to be helping anybody out when you run yourself out of business. So if you want to help people, that's what you hear a lot. I just want to help people. You hear this constantly from techs, from shop owners. I want to help people. Well, if you want to help people and you truly want to help people, well, guess what? The best way to help them and help more of them is to grow your business and gain more customers. And the only way you can do that is by charging what you need to charge and pay your techs well, so you can pull techs in because yes, we have a technician shortage, but I also think we have a pay shortage where we've not paid techs well enough. That's one thing that gets brought up constantly. Flat rate being one of them. You know, I was a flat rate tech for lots and lots of years and you know, the, the whatever it may be, whether it's, it's fair or not, like that we know some people that pay flat rate, but they actually charge appropriately and are taking care of their techs and paying them. They're not trying to fight for diag hours and all of that stuff that we had to do when we were at the dealership. Uh, All of that stuff comes into play and that's what's making techs upset. That is the number one comment. You can go on any of my TikToks where I'm talking about this stuff and you'll see the comments of, I left the industry because I was flat rate and I was constantly getting screwed and I couldn't stand the politics. Or I left the industry because my shop owner wasn't paying me and I went over here and they paid me a lot more. I left the industry because I went to fleet because the fleet companies don't care. They just pay and I get paid you know, $40 an hour or whatever. Those are the comments you'll see time and time and time again. And we've, we can't pay more unless we're charging appropriately. I don't, you may be charging appropriately and you may just not be paying your techs enough. I don't know. Uh, that's a, each individual shop's going to have to do a self audit and figure out what they need. Well, cause you may want 10 cars in your home garage instead of eight, like your former, <laughs> like we've got to be sympathetic to that guy too, Chris, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> eight's not enough. Eight. <laughs> God darn it. I, you know, it's not one thing to have the nicest house in the nicest neighborhood. You got to have that summer home too. Well, you know, and like, it's a, I don't like, you and I have talked about this. I, I don't mind a shop owner having nice things. Like I want a shop owner to have nice things. When you look at the numbers, what, what is it? The stats are four to 5% that mo- the average shop is making four to 5%. 
I, and anybody out there who's not good at math, a million dollars, that's forty to $50,000 a year, okay? That is trash money for owning a business, taking all of the liability and the risk and all of the stress. It is hard. I know what it's like after the first year. My wife and I have had multiple discussions saying, we understand now why so many shops go out of business. It's such a hard thing to do, doing the business and dealing with people and then dealing with employees when you have employees. And I don't even have employees yet. And it's already hard now. Then you add your own people and then you have their people problems. And so you add all that stuff together, but you know, it, every place is going to be different. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's salons that make over a million a year and they take home way more than 5% and their overhead is next to nothing compared to what we do. So even if we were to like shoot for 10%, we still have to still charge so much more than what they do to cover the overhead. But yet you'll see people that will think nothing is spending a hundred bucks to have their hair done. But if you oh, try to, more than that, oh yeah, for sure. Right. But if you uh, round I have number. a friend that owns a salon and, and the amount of money that it, some people pay, like we're talking like 600 mm-hmm. plus sometimes, depending on what they're getting done. It's, it's mind blowing. And, and we all know that obviously like getting your hair done is a lot different than having to fix a car that you've been driving for four to my wife explains this perfectly because you know, we always talk about it, right? Like people don't want to spend money on their cars. And she says, well, yeah, it makes sense. You know, you get a bathroom remodeled and you're willing to pay 10, 15 grand for that, but you get a nice new shiny bathroom. Mm -hmm. You, you know, get a new deck or you get your hair done or you buy whatever you're buying iPhone or whatever, you actually get something as far as car repair. You've been driving the same car for six to seven years and you've just paid $2,000 to fix it. And guess what? It's the same car that you've been driving for six to seven years. The only difference is, is you paid to fix something like, unless we again, do a better job to communicate to them why that is important and why they need to do these things and why spending the money is a good thing to help them keep their vehicle for longer, which will save them money. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize that it's saving them money by maintaining their vehicle. Then, you know, they're, they're just, it's always going to be that way. It, they, I don't know. It's, it's still, it's a, so much hinges on us communicating and, and like back to your point about charging more, like if to get to 10%, but here's the thing, if they're only at four to 5% and they're already not paying their employees where they need to pay, pay them to keep them from going to another industry because they're paying more, then they have to go up even more to pay their employees more and get themselves to 10%, right? Like even 10%, like hundred grand, like I was making a hundred grand as a tech. Like, I don't want to be making a hundred grand doing a million dollars a year. Why would I want that? That should not be my end goal because if it is, I will just own a job essentially because I could just go back and make that back at the dealership and they offer me more money to come back. Mm-hmm. So why would I want to do that? My goal is, is to now granted, I will say my goal is freedom. That's my end goal. Like I don't want to have to be in the shop at the end of the day. That is like my ultimate goal. I want, I have other dreams and aspirations to do other things. The shop is my main goal and my main dream and vision right now. But I do eventually want to, I want to, manage the business and manage the people not work in it every day. Like I am now. Yeah. You're, you're going on a hunting trip soon and you want to be able to take more of them. Right. And yes. Nope. And I want to be able to make money while I'm gone. 
and that you can you can leave it in competent, capable hands, and it will not have to be shut down. Right? You don't have to force everybody to take a holiday when you take a holiday because uh, if I'm oh. here, I can't run. That isn't cool, right? Like, no, we had that conversation. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. It's not cool. I mean, I understand what no. happens. And if you have people that are willing to do it, then then shake their hand and thank them because they're really at that point they're helping you an awful lot. And you can you an can take, awful lot. You can take the stand of well, they're my they're my staff. Like it's you know they work for me. But let's think about that, right? Say you're going to go bear hunting in Maine in a, in a couple months, right? And you know you're you're at a point right now where you're just, it's you. So you're going to move your schedule around. You're going to take your, your well-deserved vacation and, and hopefully go get a big bear. But for other people, if you're not at that situation, you got some staff, but you can't leave the shop with them, your smaller operation or whatever to really, to say to them, well, you know, I can't, you're, you're going to have to take a week off. Like there's nothing you can do. That's not cool. That's we need no. to get past that where that's not even a topic of conversation. It doesn't even come up. You know, how do we get absolutely? To, I don't know, but I think it's it's you know because they, they got to manage the business better. Yeah, because we don't see that what it comes other businesses, right? You don't see that like a drywall or construction company or whatever. If he's if the boss is off on a bear trip, you know we don't even know about it. Business goes on. But if we're such a yep. small business that it's like, okay, I'm going to take my well-deserved vacation. I'm not saying it's not deserved, but I got to shut everybody down. You're forced to go without a week's pay. Mm, what did that business really cost? What did the vacation really cost you then? A lot more than just what the ticket is at the end of the, at the bottom for what it cost you, what your employee can feel like, you know, and this is what I, well, and that, you know, when people get a job, they quit a job, not normally because of money is because of how they feel. And that's what I, as I move forward, yeah. I want to bring more people to the realization through when we have these conversations and these stories and we tell about what, how you felt through what you were going through. When I start to tell people how something was made me feel in this industry and it resonates with so many other people, maybe the light bulb goes off for some more people. It's like, okay, I never really felt like that. I never really thought of it that way. That's how we get to where we need to go, I think, is start to talk about the feelings. And that's a tough thing to talk about. It is, especially in a male-dominated field. And also, like, you know, you, you'll see, I've talked about this a lot, like, and I bring this up every time now, like anytime, like, especially in like ASOG or one of the groups, like somebody will say, like an owner will go in there and say, you know, my employee's doing this, whatever it may be. I don't even know, but they're, they're in there. I don't know if they're complaining, they're just stating, they're asking, who knows whatever they're doing. And my question is always, did you have a conversation with them? And the answer is no. Yeah. I'm like, well, then why are you in here asking us? Why not go talk to them? Me as a tech, when I was at the dealership, all I wanted somebody to do was make me feel like I was a human being. Just acknowledge me. I know Dutch is not going to love this statement, but I... Just just come say hi to me instead of only ever coming to me when I make a mistake. Maybe when I turned you 115 hours in a week, 
come and say, hey, great job, fantastic. We appreciate you making money for us hand over fist. And, you know, the fact that you just turned these many hours, what a great accomplishment. Like that, come come say that to me instead of, oh, hey, uh, you have another comeback or you screwed something up or, hey, why'd you only turn 50 hours last week instead of 80 hours? You know, that, it, we need to talk. People are human beings. They have their own things they're going through in life. And I know some people don't like that and some people don't want to have conversations. But again, here's something we always do as a society as a whole is we build up things way bigger than they are in our minds. We have a viewpoint of the way we think a conversation is going to go and we automatically go to the negative and it's, oh, it's going to, you know, they're going to be upset. They're going to freak out, whatever. They might quit, whatever. It's rarely ever the case. It's never as bad as we build it up to be. And usually that's what they want. They want you to come talk to them and have a conversation. Like we need to have open lines of communication. And that's why going back to like my post, whenever I post something about the dealership and the captions, I always put, I encourage you to try to find a good independent shop because you get that family feel. i don't think that dealerships are bad and evil and all of this stuff. Again, like we said, I worked there for a long time and it supported my family and I did really well there. But I, the family community that you build, like Lucas talks about all the time, is such a different thing because when something happens and you're going through something, they're helping support you and going through it with you yeah. versus somewhere else where you're just a number. It's not the way it is. Yeah. There's, Owners need to understand there's more to showing appreciation than just signing a check. You mean pizza? Well, <laughs> but so like even if you don't get pizza, right? And you say, well, I never felt like I was appreciated. And somebody is going to say, well, they paid you, didn't they? There's yeah. so much more to that, right? I've worked for people that pay me less because they treated me better or I felt more appreciated. And the dealership thing, you got to remember, some of them are big. So it could be really hard yeah. for them to to necessarily, you know, uh, did my owner ever come around and, and shake my hand once a week at a dealership? No, she was, you know, she had an office and she just, you know, it was what it was. I didn't expect that. And, uh, you know, yeah. but when you work in a smaller shop, you do feel, you can feel more appreciated, more, like you said, a member of the family. When you see Lucas interact with his staff, they're not his staff. They're they're his family. They're, it's the way he, it's the way his he's wired. It's the way he feels. It's it's this very core value of how he feels like you should treat people. It's a beautiful thing to see. Does it work for everybody? No. Does it have to work for everybody? No. It doesn't. Everybody doesn't have to be. We can all be different. It's cool. Yeah. But I think absolutely to get people to come into this industry now. We talk about you know millennials and boomers and all this kind of stuff. At the core, it doesn't matter. People want to feel appreciated. So if you can show appreciation to your customers, to your staff, to the to your parts suppliers, if you show appreciation, it goes a long way towards getting much better results, I feel. It's not about the money. I didn't quit the dealer because of money. I quit the dealer because I didn't feel appreciated. I didn't feel like I was treated the way I deserved. And that's a key thing. If you're listening to this owner's Treat them the way they deserve to be treated. It'll take care yep. of so many more problems that you don't have to get your wallet out and throw money at the problem. 
And it can be tough, but just like you said, have the conversations before you go and talk to a bunch of strangers online in a, in a group about, <clears throat> excuse me, what a staff member is doing. Talk to the staff member. It's pretty yeah, just sit them down. Like have a, ha- just have a heart to heart conversation. It's it, the more you do it, the easier it'll get. I mean, you know, maybe you're nervous at first. That's okay. Like it's, it's fine. Like I know some people don't like having those conversations, but you know, like I said, the more you do that kind of stuff, the easier it gets. And absolutely like as a whole, we just need to do better. I agree with you 100%. Like people want appreciation. That's why I left the dealership for the same reason. It had nothing to do with money. Zero. I was making great money. I was very happy where I was at money wise had absolutely nothing to do with that. And people also want to feel like they belong and they're a part of something. They want to feel like they're a part of the business, like they're actually doing something for it and helping it grow. And that makes a big difference as well. And I, you know, who am I to say, because I don't have any employees, I've been managers and hired employees for other companies, but for myself, I'm not there yet. So, you know, I'm only speaking from my perspective of not having employees. So take what I say with a grain of salt, but I can tell you how I felt as an employee and as a tech working for independents and dealerships, both. That's just how I felt. Well, man, I appreciate that. I think that is a, uh, you know, I, uh, I enjoy the, the, the candor we have and the friendship and the, and the way we talk so much constantly, because I mean, there's, it, it's important, right? And that's, that's why I'm, I wanted to have you on for so long and, and you're, you're a popular guy. You get on with a lot of people and, uh, you know, it's, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the fact that, um, we don't, we don't agree on necessarily every little thing you and I, we don't see, you know, and it's, and it's great. Because it's, you know, it, it's it's what makes us all different. It's what makes us strong. You know, it, it, it takes more than one method to make anything work. And uh, that's been the beauty of getting to know you and Marissa and everything else is, is I, I, it, I'm excited when I see younger people, you know, that are, that are kicking the norms and breaking the cycles and, and starting to do it and be successful at it. And it, you know, I've seen it, you, 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 you get hit with a lot of arrows of people, you know, because you put yourself out there, right? People like, and, and that's good, man. It's, it's, you know, the resolve you have for the way you take what some people, you know, say, and you just laugh it off. It's, it's a, it's a good quality to have, man. I appreciate it. So I thank you. Absolutely. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, I, my goal is to help people. That's why I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing on social media and, Absolutely. You can't always agree on everything. The key is, is having the conversations, right? Like we've, we've had several conversations where we are both sharing our perspectives and viewpoints and they don't line up, but that's okay. Like there's nothing wrong with that. Guess what? I down the road may think that back on that, actually I do this a lot and I'll think back and like, man, hmm, you know, that's, that might be right. You know, you start to think and dwell on those things that you are just like so against in your mind right off the bat. But as long as you're open-minded and willing to change and better yourself, that, that those are the conversations we need to have. We can't better ourselves unless we're willing to have those tough conversations. And I just want to say before I get off here that I appreciate everything that you're doing. I appreciate this podcast. They are fantastic. Yeah. And 
I just appreciate everything that you're doing for the industry because we need this type of podcast and these types of guests to help raise more awareness. And so I appreciate it very much. Yeah. And that means a lot coming from you because it's just, you know, I, you've all heard me say, and everybody that knows me well knows what the motive is. And that's just to tell the stories. That's it. You know, you're not, you're not going to come on here and learn a ton of stuff. <laughs> you know, we're not going to do these. We're just, we're just going to tell stories and we're going to, we're going to discuss how we feel about certain things and why we feel that way. And, uh, you know, I feel like if we have, you know, a hundred more of you and what you're doing, we're into a, we're headed in a very good place. So uh, I can't wait to see you I guys. Appreciate that. So, well, you and Marissa and I will sit down and have Chick-fil-A again. And, uh, we might even, we might even record another episode and we get Marissa on. We can talk about the dynamic of, you know, what that's like. And, uh, I just think it's going to be awesome. So I can't wait, man. But uh, yeah, I'm excited as well. And I, I, again, I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, if you could do me a favor real quick and like comment on and share this episode, I'd really appreciate it. And please, most importantly, set the podcast to automatically download every Tuesday morning. As always, I'd like to thank our amazing guests for their perspectives and expertise, and I hope that you'll please join us again next week on this journey of change. Thank you to my partners in the ASAR group and to the Change in the Industry podcast. Remember what I always say, in this industry, you get what you pay for. Here's hoping everyone finds their missing 10 millimeter, and we'll see you all again next time.